We, uh, if, if you have not been here, we just started a new sermon series last Sunday, and it's going to be a short one because it's a short book of the Bible. This is an Old Testament book. It's Ruth. It um, comes Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's during the time of the Judges, and that's the book before, which was a really odd time in Israel's history. There's just a lot of instability. There's a lot of disobedience. There's this refrain in the book of Judges about during this time there was no king in Israel, so people just did what was right in their own eyes. So don't picture this really super devout, super obedient time. It's really a lot of upheaval. That's when Ruth takes place. So we're going to be in Ruth, and we're going to look at chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Undercover Boss. It's one of these reality shows. Uh, I've seen it a few times, not a lot. But, you know, the premise of the show is that you've got somebody that's the CEO or the owner or their mom or dad started the company. And so this is the head honcho. So this man or woman will go undercover, will go work in these different aspects of the business. Usually like really the grunt work, get your hands dirty, not in the C-suite, but out there, you know, in the factory floor or behind the counter, whatever. And then at the end of the episode, these different people that the boss worked with uh, sit across from the boss who's not undercover anymore. And, you know, it's a reality show and it's very manufactured. And sometimes the person's kind of in trouble because they didn't do what they were supposed to. But a lot of times they're really, um, the boss will really show great kindness. They'll say, you're an amazing person. I never would have met you. You're, you're what makes this company great. And they'll, they'll do something like pay a medical bill that this person can't pay, or um, pay for their child to go to college, or get them in a house. And, you know, it's kind of a tearjerker reality show moment. But, you know, I've seen an episode where a woman, she, she was very moved. You know, she was moved to the point of tears. I can't remember what the, what the kindness was, but she said, this is the first time in my life where somebody gave me a break. You know, like just where some big game-changer kindness dropped in my lap. Now, in the Bible, you won't really, <clears throat> you won't hear the language of, of getting a break. That's a little bit more of a, you know, an idiom. But it'll talk about somebody showing you favor. And it's interesting because in, in the Old Testament, favor translates a Hebrew word, chain, which you can translate grace. Uh, and grace is not just kindness in the absence of merit. It can be kindness in the face of demerit. And I'll give you a personal example of a, of a break, of favor. When, uh, before we lived in Greenville, we lived in Nashville, Tennessee. And there was a group of men that I used to have breakfast with every Friday at the Pancake Pantry, which was a great way to start a Friday. And one of these men, just uh, in the course of the breakfast, I, I can't even remember what the context was. I just mentioned in passing about, you know, still paying off student loans from, from seminary. And at that point, they weren't huge, but it was a little bit over 2,000. That was whittling down. And he called me later that Friday and he said, uh, you mentioned about that you have student loans. I was curious, how much is that? And I said, I think it's about 2200 And he just said, well, I'd like to pay that. Now, it's completely unexpected. Now, I think I could have gotten there, you know, but I, I know I could have gotten there, but it was just, that was favor. I didn't earn that. I didn't deserve that, but it was just favor. It's a break. I want you to listen in this passage for the language of favor. That term is used several times in this chapter that you've got 
this woman Ruth, who has lost her husband, her sister has gone back to their home country of Moab. Ruth did not grow up in Israel. She grew up in, a, in a, another nation, Moab. I'll talk about that more later. Ruth's sister has gone back. Ruth's sister had lost her husband. Ruth lost her, her father-in-law. But she has her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she says to Naomi, I'm going to try to find somebody to give us favor. And she does find favor. But I want you to see what it looks like when that happens. So we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now that's her deceased father-in-law. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you, you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord 
whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this account, this account with fields and harvests and barley and some names that we don't recognize and your presence. And Lord, in whatever state we come, if if this is interesting or if we're indifferent or we feel beat down or feel that you're distant or we feel that you're close, in whatever state we pray, please help us as we hear your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, We talked some about providence, and I referred to a catechism. I might refer to one here later, but I want to make sure everybody knows what a catechism is. A catechism is a teaching device. It's written in a question-and-answer format, and there's different Christian traditions have catechisms. There's a Roman Catholic catechism. There's actually been more than one Catholic catechism. There's a Lutheran catechism. There's all kinds of catechisms, And, uh, and Presbyterians have catechisms. And I've seen one that's actually written for really very young children, start to teach them just the basic doctrines. And one of the the questions goes like this, can you see God? And the answer is, no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. I can't see God, but he always sees me. Now, not hard language to understand, but the question is, Do you experience that? That God, even though you can't see, we can't see him in this room, that he sees you and that he's with you. I've shared this story with some of you, but when when, uh, our oldest son, when he was little, it was bedtime and and I was putting him to bed and, um, and we were talking about God. And uh, Henry asked the question, I, I, I made the comment that, that God is everywhere. And so Henry pointed at the closet and he said, is he in that closet? And it was that weird moment where, you know, you thought you were in the position of the teacher. And it sort of did a judo move on me. And so, like, I'm kind of looking over at the closet with different eyes and went, yes, he is. And then Henry said, is he on the bed with us? And I found myself saying, yes, he is. But, you know, the, the, the instructor, the teacher, went from kind of talking about it to, you know, feeling. So what, if that's true, that's a game changer. But you can say it and not experience it. Um, I, I, something that I said last week, and I just I, I want to say it again because I don't want these Bible characters to be pretend. 
I, I don't want them to be like, you know, Bible storybook characters, kind of cartoon characters. These are women under great duress. Yeah, I bet you've seen those kind of lists about what are the top stressors that a person can go through. I mean, think about some of them. Loss of spouse. Loss of child. Relocation, especially far away. Uh, financial upheaval. Poverty. They're going through all of those in Ruth, these two women. And it's not like things like cortisol or stress hormones that those just started appearing in our bodies 50 years ago. You know, like that's happening on their insides as they're under great duress. Do they experience the presence of God? And this is where you and I have got a real advantage because on the one hand, we get to see things that they could see. I'm going to talk about those first. But we get to see some things that they can't see and we get to as the reader. In fact, we get to as the reader having not only Ruth, but we've got the whole Bible. So let's look at that. And let's think about, all right, here are two women. They need a break. They need favor. They need grace. What can they see and what can they not see that we get to see? All right, let's look at it that way. What do the women see and what they don't see? First off, Naomi and Ruth can see. I'm going to say a couple of things. And since we're using the language of favor, of grace, they can see unnatural favor and tangible favor. Now, what do I mean by unnatural favor? And by the way, really, any grace has to be unnatural. Does that make sense? Like, if you kind of had it coming to you anyway, it's just decent treatment or wages or whatever. I mean, grace, by its definition, has to come unnaturally to you. Why is it unnatural for Boaz to respond to Ruth the way that he responds to her? I want to show you this. If Ruth chapter 2 was submitted to your English teacher in high school, she would give it a bad mark. She would say, try again. And the reason is because your teacher probably said, all right, once you've said something a time or two, you don't have to say it to death. You know, let the reader remember that you said it a time or two. Listen just to what we call Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, now we already know that. We know it's been very clear that she's not from Israel. She's from Moab. Verse 2. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, look, at th- this, is, this is a doozy. Verse 6. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, in case you missed that. (laughs) Verse 10. This is Ruth responding to Boaz. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Verse 21. Ruth the Moabite said, the the writer is sort of beating us over the head. Why? And, And this is where you do need a little bit of Old Testament background. Um... And this will be in the community group notes, but in case you're taking your own notes. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, and this is the, the, the books of Moses, the law of Moses, before they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. One of the things that they heard before they go into the promised land is, hey, do, essentially, don't cozy up to Moabites. Because when you're in the wilderness, they mistreated you. And we actually, as a church, studied this this past summer. We studied the book of Numbers, 
And there's an incident where the people, all these hundreds of thousands of people, they're in the wilderness. And this king hears about how they're beating all these armies. And he doesn't want to be the next one. And so he hires a sorcerer named Balaam to to hex Israel, to pronounce a curse on Israel so they'll lose their battles. Well, it was the king of Moab. The Moabite king. That was one incident. And so God says in Deuteronomy 23... Uh, down to the 10th generation, a Moabite is not to be brought into the assembly of the Lord. So all that to say, Israelites are not predisposed to be friends with uh, Moabites. So it's unnatural. And how does he speak to her, by the way? Does he just kind of like, is he civil? He says, listen, my daughter, here's what I want you to do. And, and here's what I want to do. So that you're safe. And she actually, did you catch that she actually says to him, Thank you for speaking and comforting me. You spoke kindly to me and you comforted me. It's completely unnatural. How is it tangible? Well, it's tangible because, you know, Boaz didn't walk over and say, And what's your story? Okay, and your husband died and you're displaced. Okay, well, um, I hope things work out. Very tangible protection. Did you catch the protection? Look in verse 8. Listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. And the verb in Hebrew there actually showed up in last week's passage. It talked about when Ruth would not leave her mother-in-law, that she clung to her. And Boaz uses that same verb. He says, do that with the young women on my property. In my field, because you might be hurt somewhere else. And Naomi said that. Her mother in law said, Do what he said, or you might be assaulted somewhere else. The Bible recognizes something that's very much in the news right now. It's even in the book of Judges sexual assault. Boaz says, You'll be safe here. I want you to be safe. But then just food. He, uh, he sits her down and says, Look, sit here. Like, here's the field owner and the reapers. These are the, should be the first recipients of the food. He says, sit down here and, and take some bread and dip it in the wine and eat all you want. She's probably famished. She'd been working all day. It says she eats till she's satisfied. She has some leftover food to take home to, uh, to her mother-in-law. But then the real kicker was what Boaz said to his workers, kind of, I guess, out of earshot. He said, okay, look. See, the Israelite law was, this was God's provision, if you own land and you do a harvest, he said, don't pick every single grain of everything. If it spills on the ground, leave it on the ground. And when you go to the end of a row, don't take it all the way to the edge. Leave some buffer so that the, the fatherless, the widow, the alien, the poor, they can come to the field and, and they can glean. But Boaz goes beyond that. He says, okay, look, guys. She kind of doesn't know what she's doing. Like, she's even going over and reaping, like, in the bundles that we've already reaped. Let her do that. Or, or leave some on the ground for her. But don't speak harshly to her. Just let her work. And she comes home with an effa of barley, which, for the two or three of you who don't know what that means, that, that, that's, I, I'm told, uh, is about 29 pounds of barley. I mean, like, her, mo- her mother-in-law must have just thought, best case scenario, like, you weren't attacked, 
And look at this. A break, you know. Favor. Unusual, unnatural, tangible, concrete favor. Now, let me ask you something about our context. Um, And let's very much think in terms of, and I I want you to hear this on a regular basis, that, you know, the origins of this church and the identity of this church is very much tied up in our city and in our downtown. I'm not saying that we flawlessly execute that. I'm just saying that's part of our identity is commitment to our city. We're in the city for the city. Think about this. Are we doing natural kindnesses and expecting unnatural results? Or are we extending normal kindnesses and expecting abnormal results? Because it's like we want abnormally good things to happen by the Spirit of God in our city. But what are the means that God typically uses for that sort of thing to happen? And I'll give you an example. I've used this kind of example before, but it just, it's very real life because this happens to me on a fairly regular basis. And I've stopped carrying cash on me because I walk downtown all the time, meet people or whatever, and something about me makes people ask me for money. And like, even when I try to look harsh, or I'll, like, I'll, just, I'll see them coming, I'll just get a look on my face like, boy, I wouldn't ask me anything if I were you because I'm really... I'm a really stern person going to do something important, you know, and they'll just, they'll ask. Now, there's different ways to respond in those moments, and some of you have had this, and we've talked about what do you do in those moments when you're, you know, solicited for money or whatever. Well, you could be unkind. You could just be harsh and abrupt and, and give nothing. All right, so let's, let's agree that's not a great option if you want to love the city. But then, all right, what are the other options? Well, you could do what you might call natural kindness. Natural favor. And what might that look like? Give them a one, give them a five, make them go away, and sort of soothe your conscience. Uh, but what would unnatural be? And you see, th- this is very stretching because th- these requests never come at a good time. And I've shared with you the story of when I stopped off at a Waffle House, like in the middle of the night, not in the downtown, and I thought, okay, we're clear. And, uh, and I come out, and there's this one lone individual coming down the street. Excuse me, sir. Uh, it's like three in the morning. There was a reason I was out three in the morning at the Waffle House, but we won't go into that right now. And uh, so I thought, okay, what have people told me to do? You know, people who've worked with homelessness and under-resourced people in our city. They've all told me, don't give out money, don't give out money. Very unwise, but, you know, if somebody needs food, give them food. So I thought, okay, you want to get a meal in here? Yeah, I'd love a meal. Now, sometimes when you offer a meal, they'll say, no, 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 I don't want to trouble you, and they're looking for cash. But maybe one in five will say, yeah, I'll take a meal. He said, yeah, I'll take a meal. So we go in, and I buy a meal, and I thought, okay, like I swung for the fence, I looked him in the eye, I talked, I learned his name, I'm buying the burgers. Five out of five. And then I want to get out of there. And he said, come on, man, sit, sit and talk to me. I don't want to talk to you. I want to go home. But you know, I, it's my experience, and some of you have experienced this too, that if you talk to someone on the street, whatever their circumstance 
people pretty quickly can discern, are you talking at them or to them? Are you speaking to this person like this person is a fellow image bearer of God? Or at them? Almost like the way a a not good teacher would talk at a little kid. It seems safe to say that to see unnatural things happen, we probably need to be conduits of unnatural kindness. And we have the resources for that. And that kind of leads to the next thing, because what's easy to do when you look in this passage is to just sort of moralize it and go, now that, Bo- that Boaz was a fine man. And many men in our day do not protect women, but he protected women. Uh, many people in our day don't have an eye for the vulnerable, but he had an eye for the vulnerable. And sort of the takeaway is, so be like Boaz. You've got to really be careful about that when you're looking in God's Word. Is Boaz just awesome because Boaz showed up awesome? Or is Boaz doing something that really you could say is a truism? And that is that we emulate what we have experienced from God. So if you have experienced that God is harsh, you will typically be harsh. Or if you have experienced that God is a boss who tolerates you, then that's probably what you'll extend to people when they don't live up to your expectations. But if you have experienced that God is very kind and He's very generous to we who do not deserve it, then you have the resources to extend that to others. That's what He's doing. That's what's behind Boaz's kindness. Now, that kindness is unseen. So that gets to the next point. You know, the women could see or hear kind words, unnaturally kind words, barley, safety. But what can they not see? A couple of things. First off, the Lord's plan. You can't see God's plan. Where is it in the text? Look in verse 3. And just for what it's worth, Old Testament commenter after Old Testament commenter, Hebrew scholar after Hebrew scholar, all say chapter 2, verse 3 of Ruth is the or one of the most significant verses in the whole book. Look in verse 3. You know, Ruth says, all right, uh, mother-in-law, I'm going to see if I can go out and, and get a break. And Naomi says, all right, go, my daughter. And so verse 3, so Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She just happened to go to the property of her mother-in-law's arguably most important living relative, a man who knew God. And the writer's being subtle But what is the writer showing you? God was unfolding a plan that Ruth and Naomi cannot see in that moment. And I've already broadcast to you, Ruth is the ancestor of King David. You know, later readers of this, when they got to that part about, and just Ruth, she, you know, funniest thing, she just happened to end up at the field 
of Boaz. They, they must have smiled when they read that, thinking that God is unfolding this plan. And it's interesting for us to read that, this, not only as people with the book of Ruth, but the whole Bible. Because we have the New Testament. And you know, there are words in the New Testament that are very relevant here, but Christians sometimes quote them in a bad way and sometimes in a good way. Here's the words. It's Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. God makes everything work out for good for His people. Now, here's a bad way to quote that is when somebody is absolutely exploding on their insides with pain or loss or tragedy or depression and to just kind of like fling that. That feels hurtful. What that feels like is, I don't really want to sit with you in your pain. I don't want to enter into your pain. I'm going to tie up your pain with a bow and walk away. That's not helpful. But let's not throw it away either. That the, and then, by the way, that's not the only scripture that teaches this. But the, the Word of God says, when you belong to Him, this is really interesting because Ruth didn't grow up belonging to Him. She has been brought into the covenant community. That God commits Himself to her. That and God commits Himself to us. And it's really hard to see this when you're, when you're in pain. Or there's loss, or there's confusion, or there's unemployment, or there's setbacks, or there's addiction, or whatever. It's very difficult to see God is unfolding His plan. In fact, really, the only way you may be able to see it is much, much, much later in life to look back. There's a Puritan named John Flavel. He wrote a book about providence. And he said, providence is like Hebrew. You do better when you read it from right to left. You understand what he's saying? Don't try to look ahead into the future and read the tea leaves with God like, wow, I was just kind of looking through some old books and I found a French dictionary. I think I'm going to marry someone from France. Probably not the safest line of interpretation. But some, and you can't always do this later in life, but sometimes later in life you can look back and go, wow, at that moment in time, I was hurting. And I prayed that God would do such and such, and he didn't. And I'm so glad he didn't. What if he had said yes to that request? No, because he was working a plan. The plan for my life. That is true. They can't see that. The other thing, and really this is another way of saying the same, is uh, they can't see the Lord's presence. You know, like, like, like me with Henry talking about the bed, the closet, the room. You can't see him. Can Ruth see God? And they can't see him. But look at what Boaz says in verse 12. And I do think this is a clue about he really is a man that does know God. He's not just a moral man. This is Boaz talking to Ruth. He says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now that image is used in other places in the Bible of God having wings. It's, I mean, it sounds almost irreverent. It's, it's the image of God like a bird 
or maybe like an angelic figure, and that his people are under his wing and close to him. And there's a sentimental way to look at that, but then I think there's the real strong way to look at it. The sentimental way is sort of like, he's the mother bird, and God wants to hug you with his wing. I mean, that's better than nothing. But the strong image is this. Have you, ever, have you ever looked out the window during a really, really bad storm? I mean, like a really high wind, rain isn't just coming down, it's pelting. And you should look at the trees. Have you ever wondered, what in the world do the birds do? I mean, they're just getting smashed by this storm. Well, unless they live in the tree, they get smashed by the storm. But, you know, a mother bird, if she has young would have her wing over there, uh, uh, over them, and she would take it for them. They're under her wing, and she would take the storm so they don't have to. Now, we could list biblical example after biblical example, but, but like, what is the ultimate insight into how God places his people under his wings? It's what Jonathan talked about when he was talking about the confession of sin, is that we sin. We fault everybody else and we give ourselves a pass. But it's the glory of God that one day he punishes sin. One day he, we who are so, have so much craving for what's fair, one day God finally gives what is fair. But that would be our doom if he gave us what was fair. And that our God in the person of God the Son took the storm of the wrath of God for us to place us under His wing, bring us to Himself, and protect us. Now here's the thing. You can't see that part. You can't see God's wing and you can't see God's plans. What do you do with that? What do you do with this text? Barley and Epha and all, all that. What do you do with this text? Look, let me end with this. What should a devout Israelite, there may not have been many, but Boaz, maybe some of the reapers, as they were sitting there watching, I'm sure Ruth just chow down at first, probably very hungry, just eating, eating. As they watched her, she's a Gentile. She's a Moabite. She's a non-Israelite. And they're watching her. And she's eating. And what, what, what were they supposed to think about when they watched her? And it actually says in Deuteronomy. It says, hey, when, uh, when you harvest, don't pick every grain and don't go to the edge, but leave it for the fatherless and the widow and the alien. And then God says this in Deuteronomy 24. Do that and remember that you were slaves in Egypt. He ties it to their salvation. In other words, you care for the vulnerable because you were vulnerable. And when you could not save yourself, I saw you. And I cared about you. And I rescued you. Now you reflect that to the poor and the marginalized. That's what they were supposed to think about. I want you to hear this as we end. Um, Every person in this room needs God's favor. You may feel that acutely right now or you may not, but everybody here needs the favor 
of God. You need God's kind word. In the same way that Ruth said, you are kind to me. You need God to be kind to you. Do you know that he is every Sunday? He is every day. But you know how you see it when we come here together? He speaks kindly to us. We confess these sins. And boy, the things that were said like just a few minutes ago silently in this room, who knows? But if you heard mine, you'd be shocked. And if I heard yours, I'd be shocked. God's not shocked. We don't inform Him of anything. But we say them. And there's all this other stuff we didn't say. And then God says, you're forgiven. Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose from the dead. You're clean. You're righteous. It's not your righteousness, but you're righteous. And one of the reasons it's really important to us that you leave with a benediction is not just for tradition. And the blessing is not from the minister. It's not me or one of the other pastors going, you're blessed. It's a pronouncement of God blessing you. It's, It's the desire that nobody go home wondering like, yeah, I trust in Jesus, but I blow it all the time, and I don't read my Bible like I should, and blah, 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 is to, to leave knowing that God loves you. And He doesn't just love you, that He's actually smiling at you, and His face is shining the way your face shines at a favorite child. But it's tangible, too. You know, we can't see God. We can't see His plan. But he gave us these tangible things called sacraments. Like, what should you be thinking in a second when you watch other people eat bread? Boaz watched Ruth, and he was supposed to think about things. But when you watch other people eating bread and drinking the cup, what should we be thinking? Man, she was vulnerable, and she couldn't save herself, and God saved her. And he was vulnerable. And he couldn't cleanse himself. He couldn't forgive himself. And God cleansed him. And I was vulnerable. And I could not rescue myself. I can't see his plan. I can't see God. But he rescued me. I'm in this community of people he rescued. And do you know what that's supposed to fuel? I'm ending here where I ended last week. Is for us to trust Him. We cannot control our lives. But we can trust Him. Let's pray that we would do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray now that You would fan the flame of faith, of trust, of dependence on you, even though we can't see you. And we would even ask you, Lord God, that as we come to the table, as we come to this one loaf, this one cup, as we see each other partake, that we would remember salvation, that we would remember that though we can't see the plan, it is your plan. That though we can't see you, you are the living God. And you came near. We pray that you would lift us up. That even the taste of the bread, the drink of the cup would remind us 
that you're good. Father, to the one who hasn't faith, give her, give him trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.